you can't even compare to sports that are in season because maybe those those uh, athletes play one or two games a week. These artists do 10 shows a week, so five days in a row. So they need to be ready every night for those forces, for those impacts. Today, I want you to imagine you've taken a brand new job. The sheer workload is something to behold because you actually have 150 athletes you're in charge of. And furthermore, no two are alike. Those 150 athletes are spread across 20 unique sporting or athletic disciplines. And the icing on the cake? You're not just talking about athletes from one nation here, but rather 30. And if this sounds pretty wild, that's because it is. But it's also what Tomas Kellerman walks into every day as a strength and conditioning coach for Cirque du Soleil. Cirque is the largest contemporary circus producer in the world, with 17 active shows, six of which reside in Las Vegas. Tomas started off as an elite gymnast and diver before transitioning into life as a diver for the Cirque du Soleil show O for six years. And it was time to hang it up as an athlete. Tomas became the strength coach for O and the rest as they say, is history. Now, if you're a regular to the show, welcome back. As always, love and appreciate you. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Mike Robertson, and this is the Physical Preparation Podcast. In this show, we take deep dives into the art and science of coaching, cueing, program design, business, and personal development. Basically, anything to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. Now, I just met Tomas a few weeks ago. I was in Las Vegas for Joel Jameson's Certified Conditioning Coach Workshop, and I'll be honest, after 10 minutes of chatting with this guy, I knew I had to have him on the show. It's one thing to work in the realms of baseball, basketball, football, areas where we have all kinds of knowledge and context, but this is a totally different realm of sports performance. For example, how do you train athletes that perform two times per night, five nights a week for 48 to 50 weeks out of the year? How do you go about keeping them healthy while maintaining their performance? How do you make connections and forge relationships with athletes from all walks of life, many of whom have never had a strength and conditioning coach before? And last but not least, how do you create unique programs for a diverse set of performers? We're talking swimmers, divers, aerialists, and contortionists. How do you put all these pieces together and create great programs for each and every one? Tomas has such a fascinating job and background, and I think you are going to love both his thought process and his approach to his craft. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into this awesome episode with my guy, Tomas. It seems like every day I talk to a young trainer or coach who is frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if that sounds anything like you, I've got something that I know will help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you, who are serious about the results they get and who know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is gonna take the last 20 years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In it, you'll learn how to use the R7 system to create seamless, 
integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. How to create the culture, environment, and relationships with everyone you train so you can get the absolute best results. And the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym. From squatting and deadlifting to pressing and pulling and everything in between. Of course, there's a ton more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the cert is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the certification will only open twice per year for a limited time only. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, completecoachcertification.com, and then stay tuned for emails in the coming weeks. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you'll pick up a copy of the Complete Coach Certification when it launches. Thomas, man, thank you so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to chat. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, first of all, thanks you for having me. I'm a huge fan of your show. I've been following you for a while. Um, so I was born in uh, Budapest, Hungary. And uh, as an athlete, I was doing gymnastics and uh, diving for about 25 years. And after my professional sports career, I joined the circus. First, I accepted a contract in Macau. And uh, in 2015, I moved to Las Vegas to join Cerdo Soleil in Las Vegas. Um, and currently, I've been uh, uh, coaching uh, these artists. I'm, I'm their strength and conditioning coach in the last two years. Awesome. Awesome. And tell me, what got you into the world of physical preparation? Obviously, you were a high-level athlete, but was that like getting in the gym and getting strong? Was that a big part of what you did? or uh, A little bit, because I've lived my whole life in, um, in sport among, among athletes. My dad was my coach, was also an um, Olympic medalist, so it was kind of like in our DNA. Yeah. And, um, and I always knew I wanted to work with athletes. So I actually started coaching before I got my education because as a gymnast, um, I went to college and uh, I started to coach kids first. And that was actually a great experience because you learn how to organize 20, 25 crazy kids <laughs> and, uh, and uh, how to explain them uh, difficult movements in a simple way or just how to do a warm up, even though I didn't understand the why's. I got a good template from my coach and that's what I had to learn and do the warm-ups. So, so that's how it really started. But what really sparked me, it was when I came to the US and actually that was my first exposure to strength and conditioning. Okay. I fell in love with it. And from the time I knew that I need to get more education, need to get my master's degree if I want to work at the higher level. So that's what I did. And this is how I got where I am. I love it. I love it. Okay. Last but not least. So you've been the strength coach for two years now. Talk to me about the transition from being an athlete to becoming a coach. What was that like for you? Um, so as, as an athlete, I never really had a strength and conditioning coach. So I didn't really have that experience. Yep. However, uh, after I started to learn more about the profession, I realized that it could have been a great asset in my career as well. So then you start to feel the responsibility that when you work with these high-level athletes, they make a living of what they do. So you, you really need to take care of them um, in the right way. Mm -hmm. And um, 
and also it requires different mindset because as an athlete, you, you kind of focus on yourself, especially in an individual sport, how to execute a movement, how to be better. But um, as a coach, you go to the other side and you learn the, the demands and the needs of these uh, specific disciplines. So, so it was challenging, but I enjoyed it. And there is a great benefit of being also a, a former athlete because, or performer because I know how it feels to do 480 shows a year. Um, I, I know how it feels transitioning from an athlete to a performer, how to get out of your comfort zone. Um, so this experience is valuable, though, but it's not necessary to train these athletes. Hmm, interesting. So talk to me. Was there any coaches that you had along the way that you felt like were formative for you? And I'll give you an example, because when I was growing up, I played basketball and I played volleyball. Those were like two of my primary sports. And the guy that I had in basketball was just very coarse, very rough. He yelled a lot. I didn't respond a lot to that versus my volleyball coaches were very positive, very energetic. And I felt like they always got the best out of me. So were there any coaches along the way that you pulled from that formed you as a coach? Uh a little bit. However, I, I uh, gymnastics was pretty much everything I, I got from gymnastics. It was really beneficial. Um, being like the, my dad, being my coach, maybe wasn't the best thing, <laughs> but he was really tough. So yeah. you actually learn very early on to be on time, just basic things, how to uh, work ethic, how to complete certain tasks, uh, never give up. And when I transitioned to diving, that my coach was completely the opposite. He really focused on the mental preparation, mm. have, uh, a positive approach. Um, and I would say I'm completely the opposite of the Eastern Bloc uh, coaches who kind of like I have it all mentality mm -hmm. instead of I actually have questions and I don't know everything and I'm still figuring out things. Yes. Uh, so... So I, I'd rather meet my athletes halfway and uh, gain their trust and move on from there rather than really, really showing uh, a force in the training room, which I don't think it would be beneficial at all. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So talk to me about this group of athletes that you work with, right? And correct me if I'm wrong. You said it's about 150 athletes that you oversee right now. Mm -hmm. How do these athletes how do they even get into Cirque du Soleil like what is the path for a lot of them to get started there mm -hmm. so these athletes are coming from all over the world so in just one show that I'm working uh, we have 30 different nationalities so they are very really a diverse group uh, and um, the the system it works uh, this way either you go to a live audition where you show your skill set or you just put together a demo video, you send them to uh, the casting department, and they will find you if, um, if you have those skills. And this is ex exactly how I got into Cirque too. Um, but as far as the company, it's, it's really, it's huge. It's international. It, these, these are huge projects. They have 17 total shows, and six of them are in Vegas. And I would say it's nothing like the pro sport college or private sector. Um, we have our own specific goals. We are not chasing inches and seconds. Um, 
They just need to put out a world-class performance every night. They need to bring the people in. At the end of the day, it's a business. Mm -hmm. So it's important to, to have a full house every night. This, this, is, this keeps our jobs, everyone's yes. job. So it's everyone's interest to have these uh, artists healthy, uh, resilient. Uh, and this is the main goal. So it, it pretty, much pretty much comes down to um, decreasing the risk of injury for these people instead of uh, making them jump higher or become faster. Yeah. Okay, so talk, talk to me about this too because I think one of the things that you said to me when we met a while back was just the sheer diversity in the athletes that you work with, right? And we talked about this before the show, but if I work with a basketball team, they all play the same sport. Right. So, yeah, there's different shapes and sizes, but the end goal is the same. The body type is similar. Talk to me about all of the different types of athletes and all the different things that these artists are doing in a show that you're supervising. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. That's what we have. Um, we have, for example, synchronized swimmers at the O show. Um, we have uh, high divers. We have contortionists who are super flexible but maybe they are lacking of stability. Um, we have aerialists. They, they do a lot of pulling, and they are very strong in terms of pulling, but they, as soon as they have to start pushing something, they may be not as strong. So there is an imbalance there that you have to address. Um, let's say we have fire artists, um, skaters, um, all kinds of acrobats. So... So every, every program is different. However, it's more general than you would think because uh, it's still, it's still be chasing fundamental movement patterns. So um, let's say the, the, the Russian swing divers or high divers, they, they jump from 65 feet in the water twice a night. So they really need to uh, be able to go at bracing and, uh, and, and handle that impact. Yep. at the water so so their their training might be focusing a little bit of that um the synchronized swimmers are doing a lot of hip movement and they anyway coming from the sport so you have to consider that this is happening after the after the professional sport which might take 15 20 years and they start their circ career which is maybe another 10 15 20 years so they are sometimes not coming here in the best shape Right. Because they are, it hurts here, it hurts there. So there's a lot of maintenance work. Okay. So in case somebody tuned out for a second and glossed over, could you break down what you just said about that dive again? Because this is what you did, right? Yes. Uh, yes, I was a high diver before. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, so they are jumping from 65 feet and they do all kinds of tricks. And Probably people can see uh, this sport mostly if, and like if they have ever seen the Red Bull competition, that's even higher. Uh, so we actually have former Red Bull divers uh, uh, working in the show. So they're really high level divers. They don't even train from this height because after 85, 90 feet, it, it's a routine for them. So they go up every night and they do their trick and they have to land in a very tiny uh, pool. Yes. So they have to be precise as well. Um, it requires a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of physical and mental demand for yeah. these sports. Okay. So I'm just going to say this. If you're listening to this show and you're ever in Vegas, you need to go watch this because the high dive alone is worth the price of admission. 65 feet up, 
If you could see how small the little pool is that they dive into, it's amazing. And you basically said it's like a car accident, right? That you'd have twice a night, correct? It's pretty much. It's it's like a 2.5 second free fall, which is amazing. Yeah. But the impact is the opposite. It's not that amazing. So <laughs> the, the velocity of the of the body is about 55 miles per hour. And... Um, and it's a huge impact. It's multiple times of your body weight, and you decelerate to zero in like um, three or four meters. So it's like 10, 15 feet, I guess. Yeah. So it's a very, very uh, fast deceleration. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so 150 athletes, 20 plus disciplines. One thing I'm really intrigued to hear about is just logistics, right? How do you effectively manage? that amount of client flow through your gym? Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult. It's difficult because that it's a lot of athletes. So the only way we can do it is by scheduling the artist. So I never work with more than six to eight artists at one time. We don't have a huge space. We don't have a lot of equipment. Uh, also, sometimes the training room is built in their um, act-specific training area. Okay. And many times they tra- they're training there, so that affects what we can do. Um, so basically, they are scheduled throughout the day to come in and work out with me um, twice a week, sometimes three times a week. Um, and, and pretty much we try to use the best way we can the, the area. You need to be very organized. You need to be very flexible and creative because sometimes I'm planning something and, and I realize on the spot that, I, I can't do these things because um, other things are going on. I can't use the the space for a sled push, for example, and then and then I have to figure out what to do next. Um, but in general, I think I found a good flow uh, for the workouts. I, I, for example, like to use three tri sets because uh, for me that keeps the flow uh, well in the training room. Sure. Um, and. Um, and it worked for me. Um, but it, it's very simple. I try to keep it very simple. As yeah. soon as I make it complicated, that makes my job really, really hard. <laughs> yeah, I always joke around. Uh, and, and I'm sort of joking, but I talk about trying to be a lazy coach. So trying to take as much of the guesswork out of the programs as possible. Mm-hmm. Choose exercises that most clients or athletes can perform effectively without me having to give them a five-minute monologue or 20 cues. Yeah, I think especially when you're in a big group environment like that, or just yeah. a, a high volume of athletes, the more streamlined and simple you can make it, probably the better it's going to be. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So again, when we were chatting a while back, one thing you said I thought was very interesting, you talked about, I mean, these are elite athletes, right? Like yourself, you're a national high level gymnast, diver, and most of these athletes are, right? They're already elite at something, and now they're coming to you. But you said they're elite, but they have a very low training age. So it's really two questions here. Number one, in what ways does that make your job as a coach easier? And maybe on the flip side of that, how does it make your job in some ways more difficult? Um, it makes it easier in a way that... Um these these uh, athletes have a very amazing body awareness. Mm. So they really uh, they are really a quick, quick learners. They pick up things very fast. 
So even though when they come in initially and uh, they lacking of uh, the hip hinge movement pattern or the squat or the bracing or how to brace and breathe and we're getting uh, to those uh, things, um, they, uh, they're not necessarily the best. However, after a couple of sessions, they look like they, that's what they've done all of their life. Yep. So uh, pretty much that's our main focus initially. Uh, really, really uh, master the fundamental movement patterns and then implement those in a functional dynamic movement uh, and moving from there. Mm. Uh, in the difficult part is uh, understanding the culture is, is, is crucial because you, you cannot approach everyone in the same way. Uh, I, t- I tell you an example. Um, let's say a group of uh, Brazilian aerialists you're working with um, who had no knowledge, no experience working with SNC coaches. They are self-taught. So they don't understand why do I need a strength and conditioning coach when I got here on my own mm. and, uh, and I never lifted before or I never used any resistance before. And on the other hand, you have maybe Russian acrobats who are lifting but they are doing uh, bodybuilding style, hypertrophy workouts, and make them understand that um, there are other aspects and components of training. And uh, you can also uh, do mobilization, uh, which is also part of strength and conditioning. So uh, I found it successful when, when I explained to them if I can really make them relate to the, their stage performance. So, for example, when an aerialist is, uh, it's, it's, for example, a common thing when an aerialist says, like, why do I have to do lower body movements? I don't need my legs to be big. And they, they have to understand how the kinetic chain works. There's a lot of educational part, how, how your uh, T-spine mobility is going to affect your lumbar spine and how the lack of glute strength or hip strength in general is going to affect that. So, um, a common trait I see with these people, with uh, specifically aerialists, they have a limited T-spine mobility. They are very, they have a very tight lats because all they do is pulling. Mm. So um, then we're gonna target the mobility side, and and then of also they start to come back with lower back pain. So then you have a good good reason to say this is what's happening because on stage they need to hyperextend that back. Yeah. So then they do and they don't have a, a decent T-spine extension, that means something has to compensate. And when they start having uh, back pain, that could be a reason for it. So, yes. so they're putting the, the, the puzzles together, and once they understand, you have a buy-in. Yeah. But, the, but just the, sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to say, one thing I always come back to is context is so important, right? Helping athletes understand how things pertain to them or relate to them. And that's what you just described, right? Like, hey, you could talk about all of like the reasons why strength and conditioning is important, but until you can give them an understanding of how it's important to them as an athlete or how it can impact them, it's going to be hard to, to help yeah. them understand. Yeah. And also, also what I see as well, um, sometimes when you say strength and conditioning, it triggers something negative in certain mm-hmm. people who never experienced. And, uh, you could either say, no, it's important and you do it and you're going to see zero effort in training and zero adaptation or, or you try to unfold these, these challenges. And many times it, it comes down to a previous bad experience with an SNC coach, an injury, 
yep. that happened with them. Um, so once you understand that, it's it's easier to target uh, target that problem than just saying that no, it's important. So understanding uh, their vice, it's also a huge part of it because uh, then then they really see that you you care about them. Yeah. So they start to trust you. I love it. Okay, so in major sports like baseball, basketball, football, soccer, there's a plethora of research to fall back on when you're struggling with understanding the demands of the sport. But in your world, it's interesting because there literally is no research. It's not like researchers have come in and studied Cirque du Soleil athletes. So how do you go about understanding the needs and the demands of your athletes to help you write effective training programs? Yeah, it's it's a great question. It's still something that we struggling like every day. <laughs> um, yes, we don't have research. However, uh, movement is movement, so we can still look at uh, physiologically, biomechanically, what's going on stage, and you have to use your coach's eye a lot and analyze the movements, what's going on on the stage, and the other thing, uh, you can't undervalue their experience, the twenty years experience. So. Yep. I still like to sit sit down with them and ask them, what is going on? What is your what do you feel while you're doing this? What's the most difficult part of your act? And just help me understand a little bit better because I've never been a contortionist and uh, and they 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 have sometimes you know legit questions. Why do I need to do this in the training? This or that? What is the why? I never lifted before. All I had to do is being flexible. And are you asking me to do a, a deadlift? Yep. So um, it's challenging. However, that made us realize that we can't rely on, on these other sports. So we have to build our own database. We have to create our own testing for, the, for these uh, artists. They are in a unique environment. So we can't compare them to soccer players or football players. However, on the other side, it's really hard to objectively measure their performance because what, what are we chasing? It's right. pretty much keeping them healthy. We chase longevity and, uh, and these things are hard to measure. However, we still need to find those, those testing uh, protocols that, that work for them. Um, so yes, we still can rely on, on basic uh, fundamentals, basic disciplines that we use. Uh, so there is there is no magic in it, and just putting the puzzle together. Um, on the other hand, uh, studies are important, uh, but we don't necessarily need, need a study to realize which joint needs to be stabilized or mobilized or strengthened. You go back to a very basic movement assessment, take a look at them, how they move, and based on that, you make the decision and uh, try to make the the best educated guess you can possibly do to have these people. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we have we, just an example um, going like, for example, the porters when they come in and uh, they're big guys. The porters are the ones who are either catching flyers, throwing flyers, another human being, <laughs> or they are, they have one or two or three other guys on top of their shoulders. So, I can say comfortably that they can, they should be able to manage two, three times of their body weight. Um, so when they, when I see a 200 pound, pound guy squatting 500 pounds, I say, okay, that's nice. It's a decent lift. 
but let's see your single leg squat. And they are struggling. They are shaking. They can't even get to a, a, a decent range of motion. So then I know there's a lack of stabilization going on, a lack of mobility at the ankle or the hip. Um, and, and I have to target those. So basic things like this can really, really help me um, even, even without looking at having a specific study about what the porters do and what are the needs. Yeah. So there's two things in here. Number one, just the power of observation, I think is huge for young and old coaches alike. Trust your eyes, trust your ability to see what looks and flies right. But the second piece you said in here, I think is really important. And this has been a big takeaway for me because the longer you do this and or the more exposures you get to sport at some point you're going to get into a sport or an environment where you're not comfortable you didn't participate so for me personally uh, I only played one year of football like American football not your football Mm -hmm. Uh, but it just wasn't a thing where I went to school so when I started working with football players one of the things that I had to do was humble myself I can't go in and act like I know everything and I had to ask like hey what does this mean or what do you have to do in this position and I think if you can humble yourself and ask really good questions, most athletes that are coming to you are more than happy to explain why they do things, how to do things better, and it just opens up this great line of communication. And I think yeah. that's really important and something you have to do, right? There's no way you can know what all of these 20 different disciplines are doing, right? Like you can't have mastered all 20 of those, so you have to be willing to Humble yourself and say, hey, I've never been a, what was it, a fire? What was the fire? Fire, fire artist, yeah. Like a fire spinning artist. Yeah, you've never been a fire spinning artist, so explain to me what you do and help me understand the demands of it. I think yeah. that's a really powerful thing, and it opens up for these great conversations between you and your athletes. Yeah, and and recently just happened that uh, hair hanging artist. She's a solo artist. <laughs> ask me, ask me to write a program for her, and I was like, okay, but let's sit down first and tell me everything about hair hanging because <laughs> I I never seen that. It's it's it was also a new discipline for me. Yes. So then I I have to I have to learn a new discipline. So it's it's a great learning experience. Yes. Yes. I mean, you talk about diversity in your workplace, all the different cultures ethnicities, all the different types of artists. That's very cool. Okay, so one last thing is workload management, right? And workload management is a buzzword in our industry and obviously for good reason. For your athletes, as you've alluded to, two shows a night or two shows a night, five nights a week for around 50 weeks out of the year. That's a heck of a lot of shows. How are you guys going about keeping these athletes fit and fresh for the long haul? This is the other challenging uh, part of our life because considering our limitations that I'm going to talk about uh, and the high volume of shows, uh, basically it's all about maintenance the whole year. Um, you can't even compare to sports that are in season because maybe those, those uh, athletes play one or two games a week. These artists do 10 shows a week, so five days in a row. So they need to be ready every night for those forces, for those impacts. Um, there is, they, and they have a two-day weekend to kind of recover yeah. if they can. So 
they have a lot of variables to work with. Uh, as far as workload, it, um, it comes from uh, the show load, which is the 10 shows a week. One show is about 90 minutes, and they spend uh, about 25, 30 minutes on stage. And their main act is about three to five minutes long, which is really, really exhausting. They also have the rehearsal during the day that is like two, three hours a week. They have strength and conditioning two times, about 40 minutes a week. Um, you have to consider the personal life. Some of them have another job outside of Cirque in the morning. Either they do a personal training or they are realtors or something else or just family taking yeah. the care of the kids. And the other aspect that we have zero control is sleep and nutrition. So many times it comes down just to these two that um, that's the source of the problem. <laughs> because when they come in after a weekend and they are fatigued and not recovered, and or they start to blame the strength and conditioning, which is again two times 40 minutes a week, it, uh, my main job is not to add to their workload, which they know but to supplement the, their workload. So yep. if it's just uh, a mobilization, it's mobilization. Um, if it's just a, a one set of uh, one set work, then it's, we're just going to do a one set because we are very close to the show. Some artists are fatigued. Um, and the last thing we're going to do is accumulating fatigue week by week. Uh, so it's a lot of maintenance, um, a lot of um, other variables. For example, the, the artists are... Uh, coming in and uh, and they are scheduled to do strength and conditioning right before their stage training. So then I can't push them because right. after my training, that's, that's not the priority here. So I have to know that the show is the priority, act specific things are the priority. I'm supplementing those. Uh, so the whole, the whole session becomes a priming for that, for that training. Um, so this workload is is really pliable, pretty fluid. Yes. Um, and also, uh, one of my learning experience was uh, when a whole group is going through uh, my workout, and nine of them is doing fine, and they're feeling good, they're feeling uh, energetic, and one of them is struggling. So in my head, it was every everyone else can handle that load, so you should be able to. Uh, but then. I was like, why am I chasing what you can handle? Because then I'm, I'm kind of getting close to that threshold, which maybe I'm risking injury. The better question is, what do you need it? And, and that opened me a whole other world when, when I started to look for the needs, not, not what they can handle. Because obviously they can handle a lot. They right. have a huge workload. So, so I don't really want to stress that part of their, of their you know, physical abilities. Um, but you can see I'm limited in many ways. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's, this is the part where I think there is the biggest struggle, like finding the, the right answers or maybe asking the right questions, especially uh, without any technology involved. Because right now we're relying on a subjective wellness survey yep. that the artists uh, give us every day. But this is this is all we can work with. We don't have any other variable technology to use. Not yet. However, we hope that it's going to happen. I love it. Okay. Big question time, my friend. I know you're a fan of the show, so this should be fun for you. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Thomas Kellerman one piece of advice, what would it be? 
<laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this question a lot. <laughs> uh, probably, you know, I'm really happy where I am right now. And uh, I was lucky. I've been lucky in my whole life to do what I love to do. But one thing I'm really missing is not seeking out knowledge earlier. Mm. Because it could have been such a huge help in my professional career. And not to wait for that moment when it's like, oh, there is this thing. And it's, it's really, really helpful. Um, so I would start studying much, much earlier and getting maybe into this field. Because when you don't have to struggle or, or worry about paying mortgage, paying bills, it's much easier to just enjoy college, go to an internship, not to worry about the salary, just get the experience. Right. But I was, I was getting into why I was a performer. So I couldn't give up everything and I had to work around these and getting as many coaching opportunities as I could. Uh, but on the other side, it was great because uh, while I was going to uh, uh, the Satanta College, which was a hybrid uh, system, worked for me very well because I had access to high-level athletes and I could complete my assignments so I think you just have to find a ways to, if you really want to get somewhere to, to get there. Yeah. I love it, man. Okay. Last but not least, lightning round. So four fairly short questions. Your answer can be as long or short as you like. Yep. So okay. number one, when you were diving, did you ever have any scary moments? Yes, I did a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I started actually diving when I was 20. And that time I told my coach that, I will be a springboard diver, which is three meter. I'm never going to go up to the 10 meter, which is like 30 feet. And two years or no, five years later, I ended up doing 85 feet. <laughs> uh, that was scary all the time. There was not one dive I remember that it felt so good. I really enjoyed it. However, the adrenaline and the free fall, the, it, it's worth it. It's amazing. <laughs> But on the physical side, it's painful. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's scary to be up there. And uh, you really have to be ready mentally. Yeah. Okay. Well, so this is number two, because I was going to ask about Macau, because that's the 85-footer. Yeah. How do you mentally prepare for that? How many? Well, first off, how many of those did you do a night? One, two? Uh, two. Two. How but do not, you... not every day. Not every day. Okay. How do you prepare for that? There's a lot of visualization, which is still like, it's, it's a big tool for the divers to use. Um, that's pretty much the mental part. You, you, you know that if you go up there, you have to make sure that physically you're ready. That cannot be a question. Mm -hmm. So your dry, dry land training has to be on point. Uh, from there, there is only one thing left is visualization because that you, you just, even if you train, you may you might do five or six dives from that height because it's so it's so demanding. So you don't have a lot of repetitions to do. So you have to use every repetitions to maximize uh, your um, your gains. Mm. That's really interesting. That's something that I used quite a bit when I was powerlifting because it's the same concept. You can't go out and squat your one rep max every day, right? Yeah. So you can visualize it every day so that when the time comes, you're as mentally prepared as possible. That's yeah. really interesting. Okay, number three, you have a very non-traditional background. Like you said, you came through elite sport, start working for Cirque. What advice would you give for other non-traditional coaches like yourself to help them find good mentors? 
I would say first, um, try to find non-traditional athletes and work with them. Is, uh, and I know I'm moving away from the mentor side, but uh, it's really important to, to work with those people and, and learn the discipline or, or what they do or how they do, because it's different than a traditional sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of people waiting to get hired by Cirque who are maybe not at their top level yet. So I think there's a lot to offer for young coaches to work with these uh, artists in circus schools or uh, if somebody wants to find them, you can find them. As far as mentors, I think you should just reach out to people who, who worked with these non-traditional athletes. And it can be maybe a, a also ski acrobatics or any kind of sport that is, that is not the popular traditional and just get out of your comfort zone because that will be so beneficial later. Um, learning about those uh, other sports that you will be very, very thankful that you did that. And that was one, one lesson I learned from one of my uh, teachers at the college that if you have a chance to work with athletes you're not comfortable with, do it. Yes. Yep. That's, that's great advice. And I always tell young coaches, look, one of the best things that I did, and it wasn't by design, but I worked with so many different people growing up from rehab environments to, you know, people that had joint pains, old, you know, people, fat loss. Like I worked with everything along the way and it really helps give you more experience. So whenever you do specialize in one specific thing, you're that much better at it. So I think that's fantastic advice. Uh, last but not least, number four, man, what's next for Tomas Kellerman? What else? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Anything? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm looking for, uh, opportunities to learn every year. Pretty much. I, I have, uh, my goals, what to, what to study, what to learn, who to learn from. And, uh, I really want to dive deeper into VBT, maybe take a course from my, uh, Dan Baker or Brian man. Yes. I'm really interested in those. Uh, also FRC courses on my top of the list, which, mm-hmm. which is probably a huge benefit for the artists, especially yes. in this environment, not only for them, for everyone, but especially in this environment, I see a lot of, uh, mobility issues where uh, joint health that they could use, uh, as far as the, 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 my, my workplace, I'm just excited about the future because our performance department, uh, is changing a lot. And I feel like we are going in the right direction. We are getting more and more support to grow and uh, maybe implement more technology. That's awesome. So it's it's a really exciting phase for us. I love it, man. I love it. Well, Tomas, great catching up with you today. Thank you so much. I know you're very busy. You have a lot going on. Where can my listeners find out more about you or the great work you're doing? Um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So if you want to reach out to me and, uh, and get in contact, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, on Instagram, I'm not so active. However, uh, I'm there. So <laughs> I, I try to put out more content because as soon as I post uh, like a video about the artist train, I get a lot of uh, views. So I see that people are interested to see that. Yes, it's just uh, during during the day, it's difficult to always have have those things in your mind to record things and put it out. But I try to be better at that. Understood. Hey, I'm the same way. But man, there's it's just so fascinating what you're doing and what your athletes are doing, the performances. So, hey, man, the more content you can put out the, there, the better. So, again, Tomas, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It was really great catching up with you today. Thank you so much for inviting me. 
All right, my friend, that does it for this week's show with Tomas. Really hope you enjoyed it. Like I said up top, just such a unique job. So many performers, so many different disciplines. The fact that he's got to go in every day and face 150 different athletes from 20 different sports, 30 different countries. It's just so unique, so fascinating. And I know I not only enjoyed learning about what he does, but just envisioning what a day in his life would be like and how many challenges he would go through. So I hope this stimulated your thought process a little bit. Even if you're not going to go work for the circus or work for Cirque du Soleil, I really believe learning from people like Tomas widens our own perspective and broadens our own experiences. So I really hope you enjoyed this show. I know I love talking to him. And if you did enjoy the show, I got one small favor to ask. If you're not already subscribed to the show, what are you waiting for, friend? Do it right now today. Wherever you consume podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, the Amazon store, wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now, hit the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.